Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast, where we talk with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community. Today, we have Muffy Davis, who is a seven-time Paralympic medalist in two sports, alpine skiing and cycling, a three-time world champion, Guinness World Record holder. We're going to need to talk about that member of the 2022 class of the US OPC Hall of Fame, a US Ski and Snowboard Hall of Fame inductee, world adventurer, speaker, a county commissioner, a wife and a mother. So Muffy, you've covered a lot of uh, a lot of ground there. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. This is cool. So when I was looking at your stuff and obviously I know you from when we were on the ski team together, but I also kind of knew you like right when your accident happened, because I was in college with Heather Flood, who is from Sun Valley. So I heard about, so Heather knew me before my accident. Then I had my accident. Then I came back with the ski team and then you had your accident and, and we're starting over. It's interesting to see because there's, there's a bit of a, a gap in some ways athletically. So you were in a position where, it looked like you might be going to the Olympics. I mean, that was the goal as an alpine skier, you and Peekaboo Street going back and forth. What was that time like after your accident? Did you lose that athletic dream? Not necessarily the Olympic dream, but the athletic dream. Oh, man. No. Well, I mean, it, it's for me when I was first injured, and I think it happens, it's probably it's individual for every person, but for me, I was expecting a complete recovery. I was going to walk again and ski race. You know? So um, I, I, in fact, I vowed that I wasn't going to get on skis unless I was standing up on two skis. They told me about adaptive skiing in the hospital and I said, nope, not going to happen. Um, and so in my mind, yeah, that dream was still there. It was front and center. Uh, when I came home, you know, when I came home from the hospital and continued in physical therapy and all of that still same dream same gonna happen and then after about a year when there was no neurological change and I wasn't improving um I think I don't know if the dream necessarily died I kind of transitioned that competitive energy into my physical therapy but I also realized I had to get back on that mountain because it's the mountain where my passion you know I just that's where I was free I was whole you know it didn't matter if I had a bad uh, exam, uh, test in school, or socially it was not going well on the mountain, I could just let it go. So about a year after my accident, um, I went to Winter Park and took some adaptive ski lessons down there. And how did that go? <laughs> that was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, you know, back then, and you know, because you were skiing as well, and we're both higher level injuries. I'm a little higher than you are. The equipment wasn't designed. It was designed for, you know, the double amputees, the Jim Martinsons, and some of the other lower injury athletes. And so when I got my first monoski that we bought and came back home here, I had a bucket that was six to eight inches below my injury level. And so it'd be literally like trying to ski in tennis shoes. I mean, I had no control. And it took me years to get my equipment right, to get, and, and in adaptive sports, we've learned you know, your equipment is everything. It, it, you know, it can be the difference between successfully completing a turn and winning a Paralympic medal because it's so important. So um, it took me a very long time to get <laughs> proficient at actually skiing independently. Did you stay with it? So you went in those, those, lessons were difficult did you stay with it or did you think do I have to go back out tomorrow because skiing is one of those things you share with so many people right that for me it was part of my recovery if I could ski I, I was recovered in some ways right um well I did for a while so I broke my back my sophomore year in high school and then um, I came back as a junior and senior. And so I tried that adaptive, you know, here in Sun Valley, but we didn't have any instructors. We had nothing. My, my old ski coaches tried to mount my ski on and we realized we mounted it, you know, on boot center instead of 
cord center and we did everything wrong. I mean, I did everything wrong, but I still tried. But for me, it wasn't fun because it wasn't let's go ski with Muffy. It was let's go help Muffy ski. I mean, literally people would go up with me and they'd pick me up and I'd fall and they'd pick me up and I'd fall. So then uh, I was fortunate to go to college down in sunny California and get away from the snow. But in the winters, I'd go up to Tahoe and I started taking adaptive lessons with an instructor that knew how to teach, that knew the equipment in not my equipment, but in their equipment that was mounted right and everything. And that's where I started to have success. So as well as in college that I actually really started to, you know, be able to ski again and to, to feel like I was a skier again. But but, you know, I, I would say it was all the way through college because, again, I was at college. I only would go a couple weekends, you know, stuff like that. So did that reunite that dream? Did you kind of think, OK, I could be an athlete again? Because how much did you know about skiing, about other sports or anything even? Um, well, I went to Craig Rehab for my rehab. So there they have a wonderful recreation, uh, adaptive recreation program. And I learned I could do anything I wanted to, which is, you know, at first you're, you're injured and you're in a wheelchair and you think your life is over. You're never going to be able to do anything again. And there they're like, no, what do you want to do? And they're doing, people are doing everything. They're skydiving, they're climbing mountains. They're, what do you want to do? And so I, um, my first sport I actually really picked up was water skiing. I'd go, um, when I went back to Craig in the summer after um, a few months for follow-up rehab, I went out to Boulder Lake and did some water skiing. And that was so fun. And I picked it up right away and it was really great. So I thought, oh, great. I'm just going to get on a snow ski once I decided to go snow skiing and pick it up. And, you know, before you know it, be a Paralympic medalist. It was not quite that process. <laughs> It, it takes a lot longer. And you you alluded to it that we're both higher level injuries, that it takes a longer time when you are a higher level injury. There's, there are some people who are, you know, you talk about some of the double amputees who, who one are probably more symmetrical as well. And they have all that sensation and kind of know what's going, know what, what is going on with the ski underneath them and they can feel it. The part about not feeling your seat is it's mind-boggling now right I tell people when I tell people that when I was going 60 miles an hour in a downhill course and I felt about an inch and a half on the back of my thing and that's my only physical feeling of the ski you know and the rest had to be intuition had to you know knowing feeling with your arms and the rigors and stuff but that I think helps people when you have people that you're, you know, yes, we had the factor system, but they had full, you know, sensation when they dropped the hip in, they knew exactly how far they're dropping the hip in and angulating. And so it was, it took a really long time. Um, cycling was a whole different ballgame because I didn't have my, my injury level was just the injury level there was really just power uphills, but it wasn't like I had to work on balance or anything like that. I actually. It's just people, all power. Yeah, I, I tell people I felt like the athlete I was before I broke my back when I was cycling, and I never felt that way skiing. But cycling, did that come later? Did that, or did that come at the same time that you started no, skiing? Cycling didn't even exist back when we started skiing. Like hand cycling wasn't even a sport. Like right. it's, it's so new. So it wasn't until way later. When did you get the idea that you were going to? go back into skiing and or really I mean you'd been skiing but go back into ski racing and then and try to make the Paralympics like try to in some ways make it a career right so well yeah so <laughs> I was pre-med and I graduated college and I still had to take my physics class so I was going to take a year off take physics take the MCATs so I moved back home, became, you know, every parent's worst nightmare, moved back home and <laughs> get a great college degree and move home. Um, but, uh, and so I started skiing because I, I live in a ski resort and this and that. So I started regularly skiing there. And I actually went that December out to Vail to yours and Sarah Will's camp. And that's kind of the first time I met other people that were doing it because I had been in a ski town where there was no one else with disabilities. Uh, I met other people. I learned about what was possible. Uh, and we did actually did some gates in your camp. And I was like, 
And that never went away. Like once you get in the gates again, that even though I'm like sitting on a rig and I have no idea what I'm doing and I got these two little poles of skis, in my heart, in my soul, I knew ski racing. And so then I did the Breckenridge Ski Challenge that next week after your camp. And that was my very first race. And I, we were up on Cimarron, which was not the easy slope. And I'm a brand new, you know, think I'm hotshot, but I'm not at all. And I think- And I mean, that's back when they were still running the World Cup at Breckenridge too. Yeah. So the World Cup would precede us. They would go and water down the trail and then we'd show up a week later. So it was fully injected. It was an ice skating rink. I mean, Todd Brooker went out one year in his, in his hockey skates at the finish and was skating around. It was that hard. So- yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I know. And here I am, a newbie not used to any of this and I still remember though sitting in that starting gate and it was I had you know I'm in this whole new rig totally different than able-bodied you know from two skis sitting down all of that but the same butterflies it mean it felt exactly the same as being an able-bodied racer and as I wobbled out the starting gate and made it I think about eight gates for a crash and burn I mean I think even before the steep part of Cimarron but that's probably smarter was blown out but I remember calling my parents that day on the phone and said mom dad med school's on hold I have unfinished business in the race course and that's when I knew I was going to come back that so this is interesting how did that conversation go with your parents because you went to Stanford you had one more class you had the physics to take and then you you put a lot of work into being into being pre-med into preparing to go to med school and your father was a doctor as well. So obviously that's part of the family. And you wobbled out of the start and said, this is what <laughs> I'm going to do. Like this isn't, it's not necessarily a rational thought. Yeah, but sports and passion, rational always, I think. So for me, it was, um, and my parents were amazing. First of all, I, take away the education, take away any of that. I was injured skiing. So the fact that my parents didn't go, no, what are you talking about? Never. That's what hurt you. Like, how could you do that? How could you want to do that? Um, no, they both knew that that's what my spirit needed to be whole, that I needed to get back on that course, that I had unfinished business. You know, I set a goal at seven years old to go to the Olympics. Well, now I'm going to go to the Paralympics. That's, you know, and we, you know, it's, who doesn't have obstacles and challenges and you just find a new way back and around it. And I, I was so thankful there was a Paralympic movement that I didn't have to change that goal. There are a couple of things going on there. One, back to the medicine thing. Your father it was a radiologist and read your film when you came in after your accident. So there's no, there's no gray area there. You know, like like as as a patient, you go in and the doctor tells you, hey, this is what's going on. This is the prognosis. And you kind of go, oh, OK, I sort of understand this. I don't know if I understand it completely, but he understood it completely. This was his job. There was no gray area. It was black and white. So for him to look at that and then have you go back into into sport, how was was that OK? okay with them emotionally I mean I don't know what they said to each other after they hung up the phone but what they said to me was full support I mean I remember I, I had and I you know we talk about it all the time and you don't do this alone and I don't know if I could have ever if they had said no I don't know what I've done I don't know if I would have had the the courage the um, conviction to stand up against them to say no I have to do this so the fact that they did support me and that they knew me well enough to know that is everything. I mean, it's huge, it's immense. You do need that support. So at seven years old, you'd said that you wanted to go to the Olympics. How did that dream fit then with the Paralympic dream? Did, did the Paralympic dream replace the Olympic dream? Did you feel like you were still shooting for the same thing? Was it still that same journey or how did it fit? No, it totally felt for me. I, I, I say the Paralympics are my Olympics. Um, you know, for me, after my accident, that Olympic dream was no longer possible. But thank God I had the track and I could go to the Paralympic dream, which is elite level sport competition for people with physical disabilities. So 
I, and that's that's where I fit. And so for me, uh, I mean, what I tell people is uh, that was my dream to be an Olympian and this and that. Who knows if I ever would have accomplished it? I mean, I don't know. I was doing well. I was top. Peekaboo and I were competitive. But who knows? We never know. I had had a knee injury the year before. Would I have ever really come back? I don't know. I do know I'm a seven-time Paralympic medalist. So I look at it that way. What happened to the med school plan? Because when you decided that you were going to start going into sport, was that clock ticking on med school of like, okay, I can do this for a year? And obviously, Allison Pearl skied with you and found a way to go to med school, compete in the Paralympics, and get matched like the day after the Paralympics. <laughs> And, and go and start a medical career. So it's possible. But what was that clock ticking for you on med school? And did it put more pressure on you as an athlete? I think, what, well, first of all, my dad never wanted me. Yes, he was a physician, but he never wanted me to go to med school. He, um, had, he had lived through the heyday, but then the transition of medicine being kind of regulated a bunch more and the challenges with it. So for him... He wanted me to run my own business or do whatever where I could be my own boss. And he felt, even though he was his own boss, he was regulated so much, he felt. So, so I think he was fine with me choosing not to um, go. While I was competing and training, I mean, hats off to Allison and anyone that can do it. I, I needed more time to really focus. I also had to spend time fundraising. So, I mean, trying to do, you know, my parents had bankrolled me through college, but they were not bankrolling me for this next adventure. I had to figure out how to pay for it. And so I worked, um, I trained and I fundraised. And so that was, you know, we know, and then when, you know, really to make it, we were on snow 10 months of the year. We had to be on snow a lot. And I would go to South America or we'd go to Mount Hood. Um, and so that was really, so I think I really kind of put med school fully on the back burner. And it wasn't until after 2002, when I retired right after that, that I went back to the University of Utah and started taking some of my prereqs again, thinking maybe I'll go back now. <laughs> Interesting. And so you hadn't really even thought about it as you were competing. No, I'm really, and, and like. And that's seven years. Yeah, and you notice in my sports too, like a lot, a lot of athletes, you yourself could do two sports. You do a summer sport and a winter. Doesn't I? I don't work that way. I like kind of go all in on one, and that's how it works best for me. And so I did my skiing. I had a hiatus, and then I went to cycling. And you know, so I think it's kind of for me. Um, it wouldn't have worked to try and do med school. I think I would have been failing at both, or I would have felt like I wasn't succeeding at either. Um, personally as the way I work. So, so yeah, seven years later, I went back and, and after cycling and cycling, I went back thinking maybe I'll go to PA schools <laughs> way later. <laughs> so I'm still not doing any of that, but I think for me really is what I knew about medicine and why I wanted to be. I first, I was fascinated with biology and human biology was my major at Stanford and love the human anatomy and all of that. But really what I loved and admired most about medicine was I felt like it gave back and it helped others. And I think through my other careers and my speaking and other things, I've learned that there's lots of ways to help others and give back. And medicine was one, but I feel like I'm able to do that in the careers that I've chosen in other ways. So I think I, I don't feel a void having not gone. When on the skiing side, you said that you wobbled out of the start and you thought, okay, this is it. This is the thing I want to do. And you might've been the only one who had that thought at the moment. There might not have been anybody else telling you, this is what you should do. You might've been the only That's one. That's for sure. <laughs> when did you kind of get that moment where you said you were going to do it, but the moment when you realized that it was a possibility that you actually could be good. Well, um, definitely not that year. <laughs> and a year is a long time. Yeah, no, definitely. It took me a couple of years. I mean, so that was winter of 95 or 96. I can't remember which of the years. Yeah, I don't know. I think it was- We did the camp for a while, so. And then I started traveling and training and following the circuit in 96. And then in 97, 
that year was the year I kind of started having success. I started finishing courses. I started getting down to the finish line, which, you know, you can't win if you don't cross the finish line. So, and, and I think it was in 97 when I started getting on the podiums and started getting some medal. And it was at the end of that season that I got a call from Brownie, our coach, he'd been the head coach of the U.S. Uh, disabled team at that time. Now it's the adaptive team, but um, and he called me and said, congratulations, you've been named to the team. That was that a surprise? The way you're saying it sounds like it was a surprise. I was hoping, but I wasn't expecting it. I mean, that was the hope. Um, I mean, that was the goal is to get to the team and get on the Paralympic team, you know, that, but there wasn't an expectation. I think anything can happen at any time. I didn't know who might've been ahead of me. I didn't know what they were focusing on uh, in terms of who they, which, which uh, athletes they were going to develop and stuff. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, it was a great surprise. So there wasn't that breakthrough moment for you when you thought, okay, this is it. It was sort of a more gradual kind of making the podium feeling like you earned your way in. Is that, is that how it felt to you? Oh yeah, definitely. Like I, there was not one race where I'm like, oh yeah, I'm like for sure got it ever. I mean, I don't know if I ever had it. That's where I say, like, I didn't ever feel like the person I was before I had my accident after, um, in mono skiing because our, in, my injury was so high because I knew fast line, but I didn't have the skill or the functional ability to hold that fast line. And so I could never go a hundred percent. I always had to hold a little back and that's hard as an athlete. Like you want to go hundred, but if you fall, you don't win. So you got to make it, you got to make those smart decisions. And, and so, um, in skiing, I always had to just hold some back. And so I think it was fitting. I didn't win gold in skiing because you should have to go hundred percent to win a gold medal. It's interesting that you say that because I had a conversation with Stephen Nyman a little bit ago, and he was talking about that in downhill too, that you know a line, but you also have to make that decision as to whether you have the strength, the ability, and, and, it, and it sounds like it's also, it, it can be momentary, that, that right now, can you hold that line? And you have to make a strategic decision, and there are a whole lot of strategic decisions in a super dynamic field and as, as Griffin said once, I remember we were, we were in uh, Sestrier and you'd had a good race. And, and he said, Man, Muffy had a great race. But she's, she's paralyzed damn near up to her eyebrows. <laughs> <laughs> but I think in some ways you have to take as a compliment. Of like, okay, she doesn't have a whole lot to work with, but it worked, you know. And so was that strategy of working with what you had and finding a way to be successful was that a similar kind of success or was it a different kind of success than you might have had when you were able-bodied? Oh, it was different for sure. Able-bodied, I, I was balls to the wall all the time. In fact, well, I, I wouldn't push. And then I had a coach once that said, you have to learn how to fall, especially in downhill. Like you have to find that fine line and that's right before you fall. And so she's like, you need to be comfortable learning to fall. And so I had a season where I did not finish one race. And she literally goes, okay, stop, time out. You, you figure, now you need to pull back a little and like find that. But, you know, I mean, I, I think it's one of the, I, I, and I didn't have great form technique. I just went for it. And that was hard. And it translated in adaptive skiing, same thing. Like I had to start really more conservative because the, and I tend to be straight and late. Um, I like the straight and late line. And I could get away with it, able-bodied skiing a lot of times, but it was hard and adaptive. So I really had to try and be more conservative at the beginning. And then it, towards the end, if I haven't lost it, I can then start pinching stuff. So it yeah. yeah, but it but it's definitely, I had, honestly, Chris, I had to stop looking at it as the same sport for a while and had to think of this as a whole new one. I mean, I was in second place in Japan in the second run of the giant slalom, three gates from the finish and I hooked an outrigger, you know, and it's so it's like because it's different because able body you can be right in there, but an outrigger you, and I didn't have the skill level to pull it right in, and I hooked a rigger and I was like devastated because I had fallen in all the other events. This one I was could taste the metal, and I you know it was so that 
was a process in skiing. It definitely took me years and, and perhaps I would have been, continued to improve after, you know, I retired after 2002, but I was ready to move on. I thought, you know, here it is. We're in our home country, three silver medals. We got to co-light the cauldron. It doesn't get better than that. Well, gold is pretty nice, actually. <laughs> but... which, which is true. And you've transitioned us there. But I do want to talk back a little bit to, to Nagano, because it's also you made it to your first games. And Nagano was a bit of a trip <laughs> as well, in that it was like 80% humidity. It would get so warm during the day. And then the army would go and sideslip the course. They didn't groom the course. They'd sideslip and you'd come back and it was just this lumpy, frozen track. The next, and, and so you had that in the downhill and super G because you're starting in the morning. And then the GS that you're talking about, you needed a windshield wiper on your goggles because it was so wet that all if you made a turn everything flashed up in your eyes so <laughs> after having that as your big event like you've been building to this big event what did you think leaving nagano of leaving yeah let me just tell you my first time side slipping the downhill yeah. i slid down the whole face all the way down the next time i had to side slip it i cried the whole way down side slipping it I was scared to death. I mean, only four, only four, three or four people in the women's class actually entered. Most pulled out. All I really had to do was get to the finish line to get a medal on that one. And I couldn't even do that. Like it was so hard. I mean, I'm from Sun Valley, Idaho. I'm not an East Coast skier. I don't know this solid ice and bumpy ice. I mean, it. I was in tears. You talk about Griffin, our coach. He's like had to catch me and he's like dealing with me bawling and I'm scared to death. So when we left and I finally got to the finish line and I got on the podium and I got a bronze medal, I was thrilled. And this is bronze medal in the slalom. Yeah, but at the end, so I'm just saying when I when we left Nagano, if I had no medals, I would have been completely devastated, especially because two weeks prior, back in Breckenridge, where I started this, we had my very first World Cup. And I walked away, rolled away from that with three gold medals. My very first thing, two weeks later, I go and I fall in the same three events. I mean, devastating. The fact that I even got up and did the slalom, which I hate, I've never liked slalom, able-bodied or disabled, and made it to the finish line and got a, a bronze for me was like miraculous. And I tell everyone when they see it, because if you don't see it right next to gold, it looks gold. And I'm like, I painted it. God, after what I went through, it's my gold medal. <laughs> so, Which is so funny. And, and slalom, as you say, you didn't <laughs> like it as an able-bodied athlete. And then as a monoskier, especially being a higher level monoskier, higher level injury, it's like you're trying to take 35 pounds of metal from here to there and make it happen quickly. And it really feels like work more than it does turning. 35 pounds, my rig, I, it, oh, it's too heavy on the scale when we go to check. I mean, they're so, our rigs, I think they're better now, I, but they are so heavy. And when you have, you know, mid chest and up to move it, it's painful. I mean, at least it's like bamboo slalom, which I preferred before able-bodied. I never liked the rapids. So, but it's still, it's just, it's arduous. I mean, it was just, it was a full on work. It's like moguls in a monoski. It is a lot of work too, exactly. <laughs> you said that gold is, was really nice. If you had had the choice, like if there had been hand cycling back then, would you have would you have chosen hand cycling over skiing, saying that you you like to focus on one thing at a time? Would you have chosen hand cycling over skiing, or did you have to go through that skiing part? I think my ego was too tied up in being a skier. So in fact, my husband, who is a rec therapist, who you know well, he kind of has analyzed this, and he goes, it's really interesting because, Muffy, you were a better giant slalom skier than you were a speed skier, a downhiller. But in 
my head and my mind, I wanted that downhill. My first silver that I won in 2002 was a downhill. And I came down and I'm like, okay, it doesn't matter what happens the rest of the week. I got my medal. So he's like, that is so weird because you're really technically a better giant slalom skier when we looked at it and, and in more in the technical events than the speed events. And, uh, but my ego was tied up in being a downhill. And I, I don't know, maybe because downhill is what caused my accident. It was a downhill training course. Maybe it was, I had to just get through that and prove it didn't win per se, you know, that, that I could triumph over that. I don't know, you know, psychologically why, but I would definitely, I had to get through the skiing. I had to just prove that I could do it for whatever reason. For yourself to come back. No, it makes it makes perfect sense. And on the downhill thing, it's kind of interesting because I think about that as well. And some of it is the downhill, I think, was the biggest challenge for me. Like being in a monoski, being a higher level injury, you don't have any real ability to sort of move forward and backwards to find neutral, especially when you're in the air. <laughs> yeah, which is a big problem. But it's also there are two to three days of training, which are like races before you get into the downhill. And then you actually have the downhill race. And then you have the other three races that come in rapid succession. So it feels, I always felt like to me that I was preparing more for the downhill than I was for everything else, at least mentally. So maybe you went through a bit of that. Obviously you had some history with the sport as well. Well, yeah, I don't, yeah. And, and it is hard. We're going, I mean, that is one of those things like I always said there's something wrong when you're going 55 miles an hour and your brain goes you know if you fall right now that's not good I'm like that's not what you're supposed to be thinking at that moment but it would pop in and I'm like stop thinking so maybe it was that challenge of to try and just overcome that I'm not sure I think it was it was for me I was really more of a race day downhiller it was like okay this is my one day I've sort of felt the course out. Now I'm just going to go. And so yeah, I didn't feel like I didn't want to like a Kevin Bramble or one of those guys who just <laughs> would run it all day long. I just I, I wanted to run it, run it once and get it right and call it good and move on. When you when you went to hand cycling, though, but it, did it take a while to get the hand cycle? Because there's there are 10 years in between 2002 and 2012, obviously, you also had a daughter during those times. So you probably, that, that might've taken precedence as well. Right, well, after 2002, retired from skiing, thought I had retired from all Paralympic sports. In my mind, I was moving on, um, got married, started a career working at uh, a rehab hospital and, and doing some work there. And then my husband and I took a year off and traveled around the world and did some volunteer work. So we traveled for a year came home, um, tried to get pregnant, had challenges there. So it took a couple of years there, but working and, and not thinking about sports or anything. I mean, I did recreational, I participated and, and stuff was active, but, um, but then had my daughter in December of 2008. And after giving birth, I think I did what every woman does and looked at my body and go, what happened to my body? Like I'm used to being an athlete. And, and so I had had a hand cycle. And so I set a goal because typical, I can't just like go out and ride. I have to have like some long-term goal to get me out to train to ride. So I set a goal to ride the Salt Lake City Marathon four months later. And I did that. And it was there that I met some other athletes that have been hand cycling and kind of knew the circuit. And they told me about a camp at the uh, Olympic Training Center in um in Colorado Springs to go to learn more because I knew nothing about cycling I mean I had rode bikes before my accident but I didn't know about cadence I didn't know about you know power I didn't know any anything I just knew how to grunt and push hard <laughs> I didn't know when to shift I, so I went to this camp I learned a lot literally I've explained it as I went to this camp and I felt like a skier showing up in blue jeans I mean I had no, nothing none of the equipment I would eat Swedish fish as my like food to like for energy this is like your energy bar or your yeah. food or whatever okay so, so um I learned a ton there and they said I should go check out nationals the next year was going to be in Bend Oregon 
So I'm like, you know, typical competitor, plant a seed. Okay. So I loaded up my daughter the next year. She was, this is in 2010. Now she was 18 months old, loaded her up with my mother-in-law and drive out to Bend, Oregon for nationals. And it was there. Um, there weren't a whole lot of female hand cyclists. So it wasn't like this impressive thing, but I ended up winning, um, and which put me on the U.S. world championship team. <laughs> Again, still really don't know a whole lot. End up getting, you know, right, Challenged Athletes Foundation for a grant because they needed a nice new bike. My bike was seven years old and, you know, our technology and hand cycling was evolving so fast. Got a new bike, trained that summer. I think I got a coach and trained that summer and went to world championships in Canada and won three silver medals. And so that, that's when I knew Brand this is the new, light bulb going on. Brand yeah. new, don't know anything about the sport and won three silver medals. I knew, you know, my goal had been to go to Rio, which I was hoping was going to be Chicago because it hadn't been set yet. Um, and, and, and my, you know, cycling career in, in Chicago, you know, in you know, 2016, the world championship kind of sped it way up. I mean, it went so opposite skiing, so opposite. Uh, it went so fast. We had no idea. London wasn't even in my thinking when I was starting, um, but it put us on a fast track. I literally remember well, when I got one, the nationals, I called Jeff, my husband, and I have a young daughter. And I'm like, are we going to do this? And he's, his, again, it comes back to these phone calls and his support. He was like, I can't imagine a better role model for our daughter than to chase your dream. And so he was amazing and supportive and, and, and really it was an immense sacrifice for him um, and my daughter, because I, you know, I, I, we made a commitment. I would never be gone longer than two weeks. And if I ever was, they'd fly out because she's so young. That's a forever for a kid. And so we tried to make it work and he was Mr. Mom for a lot of the time and had to, you know, be single parent and figure it out. And so we joked that, you know, London, when I was fortunate to win three or three golds, we call them the triplets and one for each of us. So That yeah. is great. Good support from Jeff. That's well done, Jeff. Uh, we, I do have to, we've had some direct messages as you've been oh. on. So uh, Eric Bandearly says, says hello, he's waving. Uh, Kim Kane said, wow, so wonderful seeing the two of you sharing such amazing sport opportunities, cheering for you, Muffy and Chris. Manny Guerra uh, said, hola. Uh, Jim Martinson enjoys listening to the two of us. Oh. Corbin Bo said, uh, Nagano was so hot. Uh, yeah. And then Marriott <laughs> Wharton was saying, wow, it doesn't look like you are moving 35 pounds of metal when you ski. So that's good. That's a compliment. But, uh, but interesting, I mean, to get to winning three gold medals, to what do you attribute that? So you went through the skiing part where you were just beating your head against the wall for so long, which it's amazing that you stuck with it. And then you've got like, it's almost like you got the reward of jumping into a hand cycle and suddenly being good and not necessarily having to go through the struggles that you had to before. Is it, what, to what do you attribute that? How did that work? So I think for me, this is what I thought a lot about it is, you know, skiing was so dependent on our core. Again, it's so core centric. When we talked about, you know, higher injury level, having less um, functioning and, and sensation and all that. Cycling, that wasn't an option. So I could just get in the bike and crank hard. And, and I've always been coachable. I know that from an able body that, you know, my coach would say jump, I'd say how high. So I knew I was coachable. So I get a right coach, someone that teaches me what I need to learn. I have no limitations compared to the other athletes, really. I mean, we have our classes, but really no limitations um, because of my disability with the equipment. And I, you know, the thing they say about cycling is the pain cave, who can suffer, who can hurt the longest. And um, I didn't know this about myself because I was never a Nordic skier, but this, I'd say the same about Nordic skiing, who can suffer and hurt the longest. Um, I think I evolved into that kind of athlete. I don't think I was that younger, but I think when I started cycling, I, you know, evolved in. I always said Kristen Armstrong won her gold medal um, and she's from here in Idaho and she won it in the Olympics in London. 
and we're the same exact age. So I'm like, well, if she can do it, I know I can do it. So, so I well, think, by the time you got there, though, it was two weeks later. So, I know she, but she, she, um, you know, I think women tend to evolve into their aerobic endurance later in life, per se. It tends to happen a lot. And I don't know if I could have been a, a cyclist at a younger age like this, if I would have been able to push through that pain. Maybe something about childbirth, I don't know, <laughs> enables you to push through pain. I tell you, there's a reason men don't have babies. <laughs> you, you lost me at childbirth. I don't, I don't have any follow-up questions on childbirth. I don't know anything about that. But you're not, it's interesting because you talk about the pain cave because you're not necessarily sort of physically, I mean, you're you're tall. I mean, obviously you're sitting in a wheelchair now, so you're not tall anymore. But what, you're like 5'10 or something like that? Yeah, yeah, all leg, all dead weight. I did contemplate cutting my legs off for cycling. It is a great way to drop weight. No, I mean, I never seriously did, but honestly, yeah. And, and, and cycling's all power to weight. So, but when I went to London, I mean, it was also really cool because, you know, we, I was the best shape I've ever been in my entire life. I mean, literally I had my trainer say, you cannot lose any more weight. I was close to amenorrhea. My body fat was so low. I, I had a great coach that got me right on that peak. I had to trust the coach because that was hard too, because I don't know the sport and I don't know. Um, but I trusted him. I had the great coach. They got, he got me on that peak and, and it worked out. I mean, I won the time trial by two minutes and 17 seconds, beating everyone in the class below me. The class below you who are more able than you have are. more functioning muscles and stuff. So I, I think that's where you just goes to show disability is much different affected on a hand cycle than it is on a ski per se, mono ski the sport and the equipment can level the playing field more, much more. So, I mean, Hills definitely long sustained. London was a great course for me too. I mean, also it was a race course a, a motor or a race car course. So line ski racing played right in there. I knew line, I could take the line and they were short punchy Hills, which is more power than it is long endurance Hills, which would have killed me with my weight with, you know, I was bigger, um, so one, you know, it's also, I got lucky. It was the right course for me. Well, the right course for you, you won the time trial, you said by over two minutes, won the road race where you and, um, uh, and Monica were together and mm -hmm. for the whole race, you and Monica were together the whole race. And it looked like in that last little lap, you, you put 30 something seconds into her. So it looked like you guys were working together. You had your your thing mapped out, and then as a team, you won the team relay, which was with some of the some of the male athletes as well. What was that like as a beginning, in some ways, right? I mean, this is this is the beginning of the of the hand cycling in the Paralympics. I mean, especially for the women. Yeah, women were first in in like at least the U.S. first took women in two thousand and eight. They did okay. Two thousand and twelve was the second time they took the U.S. took a women's team. So then you were part of making it viable, though, right? I mean, sometimes it's it's sort of the the sport happens, and then making it viable when you're somebody who's who's in a class that's not supposed to beat somebody else. You're setting you're setting a a standard, a great standard for people. What did that feel like to you? Because it, it felt like in skiing in some ways, I mean, you, you definitely had some success, but it was a not to not to be pejorative about it or anything, but but it was a little bit different, right? The factored success versus what you're talking about beating the people in the other class effectively on raw time. So it's it's straight up. What did, what did that hold? How did that whole experience bring you to your performance, bring you to look at your performance? Well, that's where I joke. I don't joke. I say, I feel like I was the athlete that I was before my injury through cycling and not really in skiing, ever in skiing. So cycling, it was, I was able to be the athlete that I felt I had always been, but skiing was hard for me because I had to hold some back because I couldn't push a hundred percent. And so it, it was in a way redemptive for me. It was, 
you know, yeah, it was like, I, I knew I had it in me. I just had to do it. <laughs> Which is interesting that you say that you had it in you because as athletes, but as human beings, we feel like we have that in us. It's a matter of communicating that through whatever performance. And sometimes it feels delusional. Sometimes in your case, it feels like exactly what it was supposed to be. Did you know that that was the end of your Paralympic experience after London or were you, because you said you were looking at Rio initially, did you think you were going to go forward to Rio or not? No, I was, I was planning to continue, but I ended up having um, a lot of injuries, Um, elbow, massive elbow tendonitis. Most, you know, us wheelies either have shoulder or something because of overuse and the cycling my weak link was my elbow. So I had to have um, a couple of big elbow surgeries. And I just realized, you know, I won three golds. I can't win anymore. That's the only number of classes I have. Um, and I want to be able to recreate and do sport with my daughter and later in life and continue. And I don't want to beat my body up so bad. Um, so I retired after 2014, um, when I could no longer, you know, I just was having pain all the time and being, and, you know, as an athlete, it, as a person, nobody wants to live in pain all the time. And so it was surgeries and it was pain, you know, don't use your arm. Well, that doesn't work well in a wheelchair. So, you know, I had to use a power chair for six weeks for not transferring. I'm just, I'm so thankful every day that I have my arms. I don't want to lose that. So it was a, it was more a quality of life decision. Um, but Paralympics are so important to me. Um, the movement is so important to me. I mean, it's it's um, probably one of the most powerful things in my ever in my life. So I wanted to stay involved, and that's where I decided to maybe I won't be on the field to play, but I'll be in the back in the boardroom to help. Uh, that next generation and help steward the movement forward for the better. What does the movement mean to you? Oh, the Paralympic movement means that we all, it's the same as, I mean, for me, I call it, it's why it's parallel to the Olympics. It is everyone being able to go out there with a physical disability. We now have some classes with intellectual disabilities. We're expanding those. So, um, but to be able to go and be the elite athlete, at whatever level elite athleticism that they want. So Olympics, you know, we look at that as elite level athletics. It's the best of the best. Well, I look at Paralympics as the same. It's parallel to the Olympics. The best of the best of people with physical uh, disabilities in various sports. And you said that you, as a cyclist, became the athlete that you were always supposed to be. Or that you thought you that could I be. felt I should have was that you that you thought you could be exactly. I put words in your mouth. I'm sorry. No, no, no. But I mean, I yeah, you didn't. I mean, that the athlete that I felt I was supposed to be, I did. I felt the athlete I felt I was born to be. And and that's in some ways, it sounds like that's what you're talking about with the movement too, to give the athletes the opportunity to demonstrate the athlete and really, by extension, the person that they are supposed to be. How did the political side where, I mean, I, I call it political, right? But, but I mean, effectively like working with the International Paralympic Committee, working with the US Olympic Committee, you go from being an athlete to then working effectively in a committee, trying to steward, as you say, trying to shape, trying to direct the sport. And you have an opinion of where it's supposed to go. And your opinion might not exactly be the same as someone else's opinion. What attracted you to that, the finding consensus? So it, I didn't just like retire and become IPC governing board member. I, right. There was a transition. But I have always been interested in leadership. You know, I was involved in high school student government. Um, at Stanford, I was on the student senate. Uh, ironically, with Cory Booker. How crazy is that? I, I forgot. <laughs> All of that like he wasn't Cory Booker back then but but I so I was on the student senate uh, so I've always been in those kind of roles when we were on the ski team I was the athlete representative to the board um and so I had always been enjoyed representing me you know the voice of of others 
and so when I retired from competition, I had already been on the Paralympic Advisory Committee um, at the U.S. Olympic, and it was back then the U.S. Olympic Committee, and we had the Paralympic Advisory Committee, so I served on that, and I also was serving at the same time on the um, IPC's Women in Sport um, Commission Committee, and so I had been involved in a couple of those things, um, and then in 2017, the woman from the U.S., Ann Cody, who we all owe so much to, she had been an IPC governing board member for three terms, so for 12 years. She's one that really had helped steward, had had the athlete voice, had the U.S. voice on that, uh, the governing board at the IPC as it was growing and evolving and developing. Well, she turned out, and I knew she wasn't going to rerun, so I talked to her about if she thought this would be good. And so I knew we wanted to have a U.S. voice. And um, so then I applied. The U.S., you have to apply. You just, um, it used to just be, you know, and there, she didn't get much support from the U.S. OPC back then. You know, we were kind of separate. We were kind of there. Um, by the time I, in 2017, applied, there was a much more connection. And so there was an application process that went through the Paralympic Advisory Committee, um, and they ended up choosing me as the representative that they wanted to back because you have to be nominated by a, a national governing body um, and or a national Paralympic committee, sorry. Um, and so they nominated me and then I had to run. And that was in 2017 in Abu Dhabi was the first election. What, because anytime you're doing this, right, you feel like you need to bring a unique voice and, and you need to bring an ability to communicate that message. What did you feel like you had to say, and what was what were your what was your skill set that that made you a good representative? So the year that I ran was also going to be the first. Uh, Sir Philip was no longer running; he had termed out as well. So we were going to have a new president for the first time in I think sixteen years, because Sir Philip had done his three years, but he had had a term before as well. So it was gonna be a time of immense change. And I capitalized on that as the Paralympic in my, you know, what I was talking about this is that change is happening and we want new fresh voices. The athlete voice is imperative as we evolve and grow this movement. We're supposed to be an athlete centric movement. You need athlete representatives. You know, I'm no longer an athlete but I was considered a tenure athlete because I had been within the tenure window but I wasn't running as an athlete representative, I was running as a regular board member, but with that experience, as well as a big important thing is we had LA 28 coming and it's important to have that voice when you have a games coming to your country to have that representation and that voice. So we played off on all of those uh, in my talk, in my speech or in my campaign. Right, exactly. And you are, you continue to be involved with the IPC now. I had to rerun yes. last December, a year ago, COVID. It was all virtual. Oh, so hard, so hard to run a campaign virtually, but it ended up working out, was reelected. Um, and we have still Andrew Parsons as, as our president. So that it was a little continuity. We did have some change in the, in the board. Um, but a lot of the same board members move forward. And we had had, and so what I, what I campaigned on on that was the wonderful transitions that we had. We had transition of a CEO. We had, you know, we dealt with COVID. We had, we had had a, had a lot of um, successes. So we kind of highlighted that and that let us finish our work. We're implementing a new constitution, all these new changes. We need some continuity to get through that. So that's what I ran on and it worked. So International Paralympic Committee, then you went and ran for as a state rep in <laughs> Idaho. So state rep in Idaho, and then you've gone back into county politics from being in state politics, the county politics. Were you so you went international? So like you're going, you're going, you're going from from like the large to to the uh, to the one unit kind of thing. Uh, how how did that arc of of a career end up working out? Well, I never anticipated. Well, I shouldn't say never. I was. I thought maybe I'd go into you know actual politics, or I call myself a public servant, not a politician. <laughs> but I was looking at doing that maybe later in life. But the time was right in 2018 to run 
um, you know, it was when that, that was the wave of women running. Um, there was a seat that I knew we could flip here. Um, and so I, um, and I had the confidence of getting elected to the IPC governing board. So I was like, I'm going to just do it. Um, and I was lucky. We flipped the seat. We got it. But I did not find much satisfaction at the state level here in Idaho. Um, I know anyone that knows Idaho, we have kind of a different, we're, we're, we're different here. And it was very hard for me to implement or get any of my thoughts and ideas through there. So moving back to the county level, for me, has been way more rewarding where I feel like my work is actually making a difference and I'm actually implementing some of my thoughts, my ideas, visions, and actually able to get that done. So I, I value it. I want my time to make a difference. Which is what you're feeling on the IPC side, I'd imagine, as well, on the International Paralympic Committee. Exactly. Totally there. Diff way different experience than the state legislature. Way different, which is why I re-ran. I mean, I re-ran because I feel like we have started to make some really good, progressive, important changes, growth. I mean, really, the IPC now is huge, and, and our relationship with the IOC is amazing and getting stronger. Um, and LA coming, I call I, I think LA is really our tipping point. I mean, it's going to be amazing. And we saw it just recently. We've always said if Americans could just see the sports, and when NBC upped their coverage in Tokyo and that amount, everyone's like, oh my gosh, everyone, I came home and you know, I'm sure you hear it all the time. Like, that's so amazing. And, you know, uh, quad rugby, wheelchair rugby, and wow, and, and all of these sports. And then Beijing and watching sled hockey. And, you know, just um, people finally can see it and they knew what we've all known all along. So I'm really thrilled and excited for that progress. Home games makes a really big deal. And obviously you saw that here in Salt Lake in 2002. It's just, it, it's a different kind of feeling. But as Paralympians, we have such an ownership of, of the sport and of the movement as you're talking about it. And we get an opportunity. We're not just sort of cycled in and out. In a lot of ways, we take that ownership and, and get, a, get, a, get an audience to be able to promote it. What about you on the physical side as we're, we'll get you out on this one? Are you still skiing? Are you still riding? Um, skiing, I did not ski one day last year, but I had a really hard fall, last, not fall, last fall was very challenging for me physically, um, health-wise. I ended up getting spinal meningitis. So it took months to diagnose and then it took months to heal. And so by and then I started a new job. So it, so I unfortunately didn't get out on the hill last year, but I am on my bike. I am on my road bike and then I have a mountain bike and I get out this summer and I did a lot till I got COVID. I did get COVID, but I'm coming back and I'm back out on the bike um, and I'm getting in the gym so that I am going to be strong because I'm going to be on that mountain again and I'm not going to be scared like the last time I was. So I'm going to have the fitness and the strength to do it. That is, it, it, it's more than people imagine, I think, in some ways, in that when you were competing, you kept getting better and better at skiing, and, and you got more confident and you were stronger, and then it's not like you maintain that ability as you don't do it. You know, you don't, you don't just drop right back into and you're as good as you were before. It does take that strength, and especially as we get older, it takes that strength and that confidence to be able to go do what you what you've always done but also to be able to appreciate the sport for what it is too I think yeah so totally. I tell you it's really embarrassing when you get inducted into the hall of fame and then you fall getting off the chairlift so I don't want that to happen anymore <laughs> train not to fall off the chairlift that sounds like a good idea this is where your humility remains very much intact. You, oh, yeah. you don't get a big head. <laughs> you, not an adaptive sport. <laughs> no, it'll it'll knock you right down really quickly. Well, Muffy, thank you for joining us. Thank you for everything you're doing for the movement, for the community, for Idaho, or, or for your local community or county, I guess is what I'm saying. But thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. Yeah. Appreciate it. It's always a privilege, Chris, and fun to reminisce and catch back up and uh, really wish you the best with all this. It sounds like you've got a great following, so keep it up. We've got some people following, which is great. You might have brought them in, so that's yeah, that. thank you for that. <laughs> thank you.
Exactly. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to all of you for tuning in. It is wonderful to get all of these messages. Again, the greatest gift that you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell people to tune in when this is an actual podcast. Please like us. Please follow us. And we will continue to give you great guests. So we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you all. Take care. Bye.